What do you need in a good leader? What do you need in a good leader? Perhaps you think of a good leader as one who is well educated, one who has the proper educational credentials. Perhaps for you, a good leader is one who can dress well, perhaps even attractive, easy on the eyes. Maybe he needs to have some experiences or experience facing challenges and doing the job that he's going to lead. Perhaps the good leader will be skilled in oration. He'll be a good public speaker. He'll be able to lead with compelling vision and maybe even have good references. A good leader is one who comes with good references and a long reach. Lots of connections. He knows lots of people. Or she knows lots of people and is able to connect you with with others. So you think about how we often equate good leadership with these kind of external things like attractiveness or good clothing or even education. One, as we consider what makes a good leader, I hope as you think about that this morning, you see in the scriptures here, The truth that God wants in a good leader, a good follower. In other words, what God sees as a good leader is not one who is an entrepreneur, one who is a self-starter, one who is gifted in the ways the world often looks to, but rather one who follows God. A good leader is one who values God's word over his own, whose greatest desire is is to obey rather than to succeed. So as we think about leadership and we think about what makes a good leader, the book of 1 Samuel is really all about leadership, all about what makes a good leader and the kind of leader God's people need versus the one they want. And so over the last few weeks, we've been studying 1 Samuel, and and we'll continue throughout the year thinking about this really great story about God's grace in the lives of His people. We've seen contrasting characters throughout our study. We've seen those who are faithful to God's Word, who are obedient to God, and those who are disobedient. We've seen Elkanah and his wife Hannah and their faithfulness to the Lord and obeying Him. In contrast, we've seen Eli and his wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who really pay total disregard for God's Word. And in a time in which God's Word was really famished, there was no frequent vision, we are told earlier in the letter. God's people had learned to do life without God. They had learned how to follow themselves rather than Him. And one of their greatest desires was to raise up a king like the world around them. You see, what they cared more about was being like others in the world around them than being like God. But God in His grace, even though they were willfully rebelling against Him, He was gracious and patient with them. He was long-suffering with them and endured their rebelliousness so that He could raise up not the king that they wanted, 
but rather the king that they needed, King David. King David would point to a greater king, uh, one of David's own descendants who would come many years later, the king that all of us need, King Jesus. And this morning, as we think about God and think about His Word, the question we have before us is, what kind of leader will Saul be? What kind of king is Saul going to be? Will he be a man of the Word or a man of the people? Will he fear God or will he fear man? Well, friends, that's what we want to think about this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 13. So I invite you to turn there if you haven't already. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to grab one of those black pew Bibles in front of you and turn to page 234. You'll find on that page a large, bold number 13. And we're going to consider there, so the large numbers are the chapter numbers and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So we're going to be in chapter 13 today, considering God's word to his people. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. All Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me and you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You've done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. 
And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One turned to Orphra, the land of Shual. Another company turned to Beth Horon. And another company turned towards the border that looks down in the valley of Zeon, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattocks, his axe or sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks. And a third of a shekel for the sharpening of the axes and the setting of the goads. So in the day of battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan his son had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. What is this story about? What are we to take from this? Well, if we could sift these words into a summary statement, it would be this. Disobeying God's word will always end in your demise. Disobeying God's word will always end in your demise and destruction. But obeying God's word will eternally give life and true freedom. Disobeying God is not the freedom you think it is. Living life your own way in rebellion against God does not give freedom but death. So the purpose of our time this morning is to encourage God's people to remind us where disobeying God's word leads. To remind us of the devastating effects of disobeying God's word in the hopes of encouraging us, in the hopes of encouraging all of us today to obey the word of the Lord. Now, as we think about what happened in this story, that, that Saul feared man more than he feared God, we want to think about the remedy to this problem of disobedience. How, how do we remedy this problem? How do we fear man more than we fear God? How, how is it that we can train our minds and our hearts to fear God rather than to fear man? Well, we see it in the text in three ways, and, and I'm just going to point sort of three answers to that question. First, by waiting on the Lord, even in impossible situations. How do we fear man, fear God more than man? By waiting on the Lord, even in impossible situations. Secondly, by not making excuses for our sins, but obeying God's word. And then thirdly, by trusting our need for a righteous king. So we're going to see these things worked out in our text this morning. First, we see that waiting on the Lord, even in impossible situations. Israel was in an impossible situation. They were in a no-win-win situation. We see in the text, we're told in the text, that Saul has now taken over. Uh, there's some confusion, I'm sure, as, you, as I was reading, as you were looking at your Bible on verse 1. 
Verse 1 is very confusing, not sure what the numbers represent. The ESV translators have tried to make use or or sort out the the confusion there. So some of y'all might have older ESVs or other translations that say slightly different. In in essence, what the translators seem to be getting at here is that Saul, from the time that he was appointed, lived about a year and then assumed the throne. So about a year had passed between uh, the instructions that Samuel gave to Saul and when he kind of assumed the throne and then he had reigned for two years up to this point. That's the best way you could consider it. So, so Saul has been reigning now uh, for about two years. He has been on the throne and, and we're told in the text that, that Israel is in an, an, a fearful circumstance. We, we are told in the text that, that Saul has, has gathered together some troops to go fight against their mortal enemies, the Philistines. The Philistines were just to the west of this region that that, uh, Saul lived in. And so they were regularly confronted by the Philistines. As we heard in the text, they were even slaves, if you will, of the Philistines. And so Saul gathers together his troops, and we're told that he gets 3,000 men together, which is a significant size for Israel. Remember, in this time period, there's no standing army in Israel. And so he had to gather them together. And he gathers together 2,000 men and 1,000 men. And we are told that Jonathan, his son, has some success in his initial battle. As the text begins to unfold, what we'll see is that Jonathan rises up as a faithful son, as one who faithfully follows the Lord. Jonathan, famously known for his friendship with David, will be the faithful son, but he'll be the one faithful to the Lord more than his father. He's the one that has victory in chapter 14 over the Philistines. But here we see Saul just sort of sitting on his hands, if you will, waiting to go to battle. Jonathan takes, and in the text it seems as if Jonathan assassinates someone there in Philistia. Jonathan goes in and has success with his troops. And and Saul in his pride, we see in verse Three, begins to to really celebrate this immediate victory. And this makes sense. Think about it. He's a new king. Uh, He's proven that he can uh, win. He can have success. He's demonstrating that, hey, you know, I, I can do this. As you'll remember last week, we considered that question. There seemed to be some... Uh, uh, a small group, a small band of Israelites who said, you know, who, what can Saul do? Saul is just a farmer. Uh, what can a farmer do to save us from this great enemy of ours? And so this small success that they have presents an even bigger problem, right? So they've got 3,000 troops. They've mustered an army of about 3,000. And notice the response that they get when they poke the bear. Uh, as they poke the Philistines, they, they prod them, they poke them, they kind of provoke a fight with the biggest kid on the block. And in verse 5, we're told that the Philistines gather together a whole host of people. Verse 5, we're told that they get 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and an infantry for which no one can number. These chariots and horsemen are like battle cruisers. They are like tanks and destroyers. They are going to annihilate these little poor hillbilly Israelites. 
They have amassed an army for which no one can count, and it is a scary time. Uh, These are not good days for Israel. And we can see this wonderful army that that Saul has gathered together here, this this army that he has amassed, for which he's proud of, which him and his son lead. We notice what happens there in verse 6. They run in fear. They fear the this great, massive army, and rightly so. Right? If you were there that day, I'm sure you would have run and hid. But notice in the text, if you, if you just think about for a moment the links they went, they're, they're hiding in caves, they're hiding in holes in the ground, they're hiding in rocks, they're even getting in people's graves and hiding in there with dead bones. Uh, they're, they're hiding everywhere. Hiding in the wells and the cisterns. Some of them even fled. Some of them just kind of left town. They're like, no, I'm good. I don't need to uh, be in this army anymore. We're told there in verse 7 that, that the people were trembling. The people are beginning to question whether or not Saul is the leader that they need. They're beginning to question whether or not Saul can truly save them from this great army that is before them. They are in a fearful situation. More than that, we're told at the end of the story, sort of as a book into this, this sort of deplorable situation where Saul's 3,000 army has now dwindled down to about 600. He's got about 600 guys with him now. And we're told that, that the Philistine army has surrounded them and cut off all the roads. And so all down there in verses 15 through 18, that list of, of towns there, those are all uh, cities along the, the route to get out of Gilead. And so these Philistian army, or the Philistian army has surrounded Saul, cut off all supplies from the north. They can't get supplies in. They are in a terrible and troubling situation. More than that, if things weren't bad enough, they're facing an army of thousands. And what do they have to fight with? They are fighting against Green Berets and Navy SEALs, and all they have is some rakes and shovels and picks. They have no weapons. They are up against this great army, this massive military force, and they have nothing to fight with. In fact, we're told that they rely on the Philistines like little slaves where they have to go down and ask for permission to get their shovels, their mattoxes, their sickles sharpened. At an exorbitant rate, they are charged. And, and so all of this, I hope, just paints for you a picture of this deplorable situation that they are in. If they have an excuse for, for complaining against God, I think the narrator has given us sufficient evidence. Do they have sufficient means to complain, to point their finger and say, God, I thought you were the king. I thought you were the one who was in control. But in the midst of this impossible situation, Saul is called to wait. To be clear, this situation didn't happen overnight. This wasn't something that just sort of popped up. This is the life they lived. This is, this is their life every day, week in and week out. This is what they endured, this impossible situation. And it was in the midst of this impossible situation that Samuel had told Saul to go to Gilgal and wait. In other words, Samuel 
put the Israelites in an impossible situation. God put his people in an impossible situation so that they might learn to trust him. That they might learn how to wait on the Lord. Friends, if you have your Bible, just turn over one page to chapter 10 and verse 8. Chapter 10, and and we won't go into lengths here, we we considered this a few weeks ago. But look at verse 8, remember the instruction that, that, that Saul was given... Lengthy instructions, he was to go and, and do a few things. In verse 8 of chapter 10, chapter 10 and verse 8, notice what he says. Samuel tells Saul, then go down before me to Gilgal. That's where Saul is. And behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you, and I will show you what you shall do. So God sent Sam or sent Saul down into this area of Gilgal near the Philistine armies where they were going to be amassed to put them in a situation to test Saul to show the people the kind of king that they had selected that they had chosen and to to teach the people to wait on the Lord The kind of leader the Israelites needed was a leader who would wait on the Lord. And friends, brothers and sisters, there are times in which God puts us in seasons where we have to wait on him. He puts us in seasons where where by his providential and sovereign hand, he ushers us into impossible situations. I just wondered this morning, are you in one of those situations? Are you in a season of waiting? Let me encourage you this morning to wait on the Lord, to not grow impatient, to not grow impatient and and, and turn to your own wisdom like Saul does in the text. Saul turns to his own wisdom and says, no, I'll fix this impossible situation. I will right this wrong. I will fix what is broken. Look, God doesn't need you fixing stuff. God needs you waiting on him. Throughout the ministry of Jesus, we see Jesus waiting on the Lord. He did everything according to the Lord's timing. He was never presumptuous, always waiting on His Father, always trusting Him and waiting for God in the right time, in the right way. Brothers and sisters, we will be put in impossible situations, perhaps even today, and we must learn to wait on the Lord. We must learn that God is in control, that He is great, so while we sing the hymns that we sing today to, to think about the greatness of God and His power, that is what gives us comfort to wait. If you're a very impatient person, I am at times, learning to meditate on the greatness of God is where we learn to wait, where we learn to trust Him. God regularly puts His people in impossible situations so that we learn to trust by waiting on Him. Well, not only that, we see in the text that we are not to make excuses for our sin. One of the greatest ways to to consider the greatness of God is not make excuses for our sin. In verses 8 through verses 15, we are told that Saul disobeys the word of the Lord. Verse 9, excuse me, verse 8, he waited seven days, the appointed time by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. For Saul, he cared more about his reputation as a king than he did about following God. 
He cared more about the people around him and those people following him and, and, and seeing those, uh, his popularity rather than following the Lord. And he makes a foolish decision. We're told in verse 9 that Saul takes the burnt offering and sacrifices it. In essence, what Paul does that, or Saul does that day is initiates worship in a way in which God had not allowed. Only the Levitical priests, only Samuel was the, the one who should have been doing that job that day. Saul had no right to do that. God's Word had not given him any sort of okay to do these kind of things, but yet he takes it upon himself. He takes the easy road and he says, you know what, I'm going to do it. Look, if I don't do it, then, uh, then the Lord's not going to come. Now you think about the irony of the text there. Look at verse 11. Uh, verse, well, let's look at verse 12. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. Now Saul, ironically here, is trying to get God on his side. He's trying to win God over. He's trying to impress God. And he impresses God by disobeying God. He shows God, hey look, let me show you how I can disobey you. Maybe that will get your attention. What Saul thought was good was rather foolish, as Samuel says. Samuel's like, you fool, what are you doing? It is foolish to fear man more than God. And in the midst of this, we see his excuses. Samuel comes to him and says, hey, what'd you do? What are you doing? Saul comes out happy, smile on his face to greet him. Samuel, there you are. I've been waiting for you all day. You're finally here. Oh, by the way, I've broken God's word. And it's cool. It's a good thing. I'm happy. Samuel doesn't think so. What have you done? What are you doing? You are not doing the will of the Lord, but your own will. You, you've gone your own way. What are you doing, Saul? And so Saul begins to make excuses for himself. Notice there in verse 11 the excuses that he makes. When I saw the people were scattering from me, I, I cared more about the people they were scattering, they were leaving, I had to do something to keep the people, to keep them attracted to me, to keep them following me, to keep them praising me. And by the way, Samuel, you're late. Excuse number two. Samuel, it's your fault. I had to do it, you weren't here. No one was here. I mean, I mean, what's the deal? You weren't here, so someone had to do the job, and so I stepped up to the plate and I did it. What's the big deal? And finally, the third excuse, the Philistines. Samuel, uh, did you not notice like the million people next door to us? They're like 100,000. Do, do you not see them over there? Do you not see the, the 30,000 chariots, the horses? I mean, it's pretty loud, Samuel. Did you miss the army on your way to town? Clearly, these things are sufficient means and reasons to disobey God. Friends, there is never an excuse you will ever find for disobeying God's Word. Saul is like another. Earlier in the Bible, we were told about Adam and Eve. 
You remember there in Genesis chapter 3 when, when Adam and Eve were caught in their sin? When they were exposed by God in their rebellion? You remember what, what Adam said? The woman whom you gave me, she made me do it. I didn't know what to do. I mean, I just, she, you did it, God. In other words, what Adam is saying is, God, it's your fault. I rebelled, but it's your fault, God. It, you made me, you forced me, as, as, as Saul said. I was forced. I couldn't, I couldn't help myself. I just had to do it. Brothers and sisters, how often do we make excuses for our sin? We are masters of self-justification. Since we have a lot of teenagers here, and I pick on teenagers in this way, I'll pick on you. We are masters of making excuses. We do it with our parents. Oh, you know, you don't understand. So, do, 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 do. I was forced to do it. Had to do it. A popularity, you don't understand. Like, people will stop following. People won't hang around me if I, if I don't do these things. I won't be cool anymore. I'm already not cool because I go to church. There's never an excuse for disobeying God. For disobeying His Word. Friends, we are masters of self-justification. We try to say, well, God, you know, you don't understand the situation that I was in. You don't understand what that person did. You know, I was driving on the freeway. He cut me off. I had to go after him. I had to run him off the road. He forced me. He made me do it. He shouldn't have provoked me. Oh, how often we make excuses for little sins, which lead to us making excuses for big sins. Saul's willful rebellion against God was something that was in his heart. His heart was broken. His problem was he needed a new heart, a heart that hungered and thirsted after God. And what we see, the devastating effects of those who make excuses for their sin, is that God rebukes them. Look with me in the text at verse 11. What have you done, Samuel says. Verse 13, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. In other words, Samuel is saying this, you have no excuses because you know better. The words of the Apostle Paul, all things that are known for, for about God are clearly perceived. From the created world. That is, it says you have no excuse on the day of judgment that you didn't know. God revealed Himself. He told you. More than that, He has told you through His Word. He commanded you. He goes on, For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. What God desires in worship is not your wisdom, but His. What God desires of you is obedience more than sacrifice. 
Saul thought that he could win the favor of God by making sacrifices. But what God wanted from him, what would have won his favor, would have been obedience, not rebellion. What God desires of us in our sin isn't to make excuses, but to find a sufficient Savior in Christ. In Psalm 51, a very famous, helpful passage, where we see David when he is exposed by Nathan, the prophet, in his sin. Notice the difference of the way he reacts to when the prophet comes to him than when Saul reacts. His response to his sin was this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me, and I will be cleansed. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. More than that, I am a sinner by nature, he says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret of of my heart. When David is confronted in his sin, he doesn't make excuses. Ah, you know, Bathsheba. I mean, she was just like out there. I mean, what, what am I supposed to do? He doesn't make excuses for his sin, but rather cries out to God and is honest about his sin. And brothers and sisters, when we are exposed in our sin, what we our words out of our mouth should not be self-justification, but rather justification in Christ alone. This is why we can be confident and why we don't need to make excuses. Do you understand that when you make excuses for your sin, what you're saying is you don't need Jesus. When you make excuses for your willful rebellion against God, what you're saying is, man, I don't need need Jesus. Jesus, I can take care of myself. But the reality here in our text shows us is that what we need is not excuses after excuses, but what we need is a righteous king. Excuses for sin, they will abound, but the fear of the Lord, more than the fear of man, is what God desires. Saul's problem was that he feared men. Perhaps that's your problem this morning. And the only way you can remedy that problem is by seeing God as bigger than any man. By seeing God as great and your problem as small. We see thirdly in the text our need for a righteous king. Look with me again in verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept the commandment of the Lord. In other words, God is going to raise up a king who is righteous, a king who is faithful, a king who will obey God's word and not rebel against God's word. In the text before us, we know that that king is is King David, a, a man after God's own heart doesn't mean David was perfect, as I just illustrated from Psalm 51. David was a sinner. David was a big sinner. He had lots of problems. He had some women problems. He had a temper problem. 
He had lots of problems. But the thing about David was, is that David trusted in the Lord. More than that, what, what this text points us to is the need for a righteous king. A king who will always obey the word of the Lord. David failed at many times to obey God's word. He sinned against God. But there would come one of David's descendants, a greater king, King Jesus, who in all of his life and all of his ways obeyed the Lord. In everything he did, he trusted his Father in heaven. And in our text, we see something of a hint of that king, something that's, that's particularly helpful. You know, it's so fascinating how often we read we read the gospel narratives. You know, we read about Jesus. You know, he's visiting Nicodemus or, you know, he's uh, going over and Zacchaeus is climbing up stuff and, and looking out for him. And, and we, we read these stories and we read about Jesus's travels and we see all that Jesus was doing. And, and, and it sometimes we miss the subtle point that the text is making in the gospel narrative is that Jesus is obeying God. That Jesus is faithfully following the Father. You know, if we would spend a little bit more time in the Old Testament, we would see failed king after failed king after failed king. It is like a, you know, a drink of nice cold water on a hot day. When Jesus comes along, He begins to faithfully follow after the Lord. Finally, a king who is faithful. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest at the order of Melchizedek. Jesus obeyed. Jesus obeyed God in every way, and he died the death we deserve. In other words, Jesus not only died the death we deserve, but he lived the life we should have. Jesus is a reminder of our need for Christ, our need for a Savior, our, our need for a righteous King, our need for righteousness ourselves. Our sin is too great for us to find atonement. Uh, we can never make God Happy. We can never satisfy God. There's no amount of self-sacrifice you will ever be able to do. There's no amount of money you'll ever be able to give. There's no, no amount of Sundays you attend that is going to somehow one day say, yeah, you can come on in. No. It is only through the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that, that we have access to God. And so, friend, this morning, if you are not a Christian, I want to encourage you this morning to repent of your sins, to stop living life your own way and go God's new way by trusting in Jesus Christ, the righteous King that we all need, that you might become righteous yourself. Disobeying God's Word will always end in your destruction. Disobeying God will always end. There will never be a time in your life, no amount of impossible situations, no uh, amount of excuses can be made for you to be justified in disobedience. It is only through trusting Jesus and His righteousness that you will have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this morning is that your name would be glorified. 
that Jesus would be big in our hearts. Father, help us to fight against the fear of man by finding you a great and powerful God. Father, we pray that our hope would not be in our righteousness, our obedience, but in the one who obeyed for us, in the perfect righteous King, King Jesus. It is him we give glory to, it is him we praise. It's for your glory and our eternal good we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.